a reading from Exodus 3.15 through 4.9. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put it on his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said to him, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, said God, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it out on dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Last week, uh, Jonathan went over to talk to the other church across the way. That's where the music comes from, and, and just mentioned that we were here, and they were they were ready to uh, turn down the music. So, thanks, Jonathan, for going over there, but also just to appreciate the the presence of another church here in the in the neighborhood and and here in the park. This. Uh, this narrative that we read today, right in the middle of chapter 3 and, uh, and 4, is of course part of the, the larger full two chapters of interaction that God and Moses have at this burning bush, the bush that is on fire but not consumed. It's, uh, it's always difficult for a, a preacher, a pastor, to divide this up because it's such a long section, it all goes together.
and and you think that this is kind of like a, a child with a parent just wanting to do their own thing and and not really saying they just don't want to do it until the very end and you, you think, oh, it could have just saved a, a lot of time getting to the point. And Moses eventually says, look, just send somebody else. I don't want to do this. But if we, if we take that approach to this, this dialogue, we miss the very honest interactions that, uh, that are going on between Moses and God, the type that invite us uh, into conversation with God, not as a uh, as a God who's more like a parent who is just never has time for the children, just saying, go away, figure this out on your own. But, but our interaction with a God who calls us into an intimate relationship, an intimate relationship like we have had with no other person in all of humanity, even if we have the best parents in the world, even if we have the best spouse in the world or the best children, or the best friends, the relationship that God calls us into with him is one that can far surpass any of these other things. And the dialogue that Moses experiences with God is not one that we should see first as Moses being somehow impertinent and, or, or God being impatient. But the type of dialogue that we long for deepest in our beings. You know, Moses starts with the question. Do you remember the questions? We've looked at two of them now, and then we see a third one in Exodus 4 here today, and the last two will be in the last part of Exodus chapter 4 that we'll see. The first two, Moses is saying, Who am I? What are my qualifications that I should be the one to go to Pharaoh to say this, to go to the people? And Moses continues to wrestle with this question in a very honest way. In the fourth question he comes to, he says, I, I don't have any speaking ability. Why would you call me? And then the second question that Moses asks of God is, if they ask who sent, sent me, who should I say sent me? What is your, what is your name? And so far, God has been identified as the God of this people, but the people aren't even called a nation yet. They've grown into a million plus people under the authority of the Egyptians as Egyptian slaves. And still they're known as the people who descended from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so God is referenced as the God of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob. But he doesn't have a name yet. And so God graciously gives Moses a name that is unexpected. He doesn't compare himself to something in the creation. I'm the God like a bull or the God like a, a, a cobra or a God like some other thing, which is the thing, the trend of, of the, the ancient people is to compare God to some kind of powerful thing. Even the God of the sun or the God of uh, some kind of weather phenomenon. But God takes a step back even from that and says, I, I am the God who is and always has been, the God who will be, the God simply as the name is I am. The God who doesn't change. 
The God who is consistent when everything else around all the people are fickle and change. I went through and highlighted all the references. If you're looking at it printed in your bulletin or in a Bible, almost every Bible does this, they'll capitalize all the letters of Lord, L-O-R-D. And every time that you see that, it's, it's nine times in what we read today, the Lord. What's used is the Hebrew name of Yahweh, which means it's kind of a... a, a, a similar to or it looks very much like the the Hebrew words I am Yahweh means I am and so every time when when this this portion is is being read and, and understood when God is speaking to him God is consistently using his own name that he has just revealed saying the Lord the God of your fathers has sent me to you the Lord the God of your fathers the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, the Lord, our God. He's repeating his own name so that Moses will remember it and know that I am is the one who is sending. Who are you is that second question that he asks. The third question he comes to is in verse four. He says, but what if they don't believe me? Chapter 4, verse 1, sorry. What if they don't believe me? Behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. He doesn't even phrase it as a question now. He says, they will not believe me. And I don't know if you noticed it, but in chapter 3, verse 18, God specifically said, they will listen to your voice. And if you think that God is growing impatient at this point in the questioning and saying, Moses, you just have to listen to me. I told you they will listen to your voice. Now go and do what I said. Go down to verse 8. And hear how God is responding with a compassion. He says, even if I've given you these two signs, or you've shown these two signs of the, the, the staff turning into a snake, and then the hand becoming leprous, and then being healed, if they will not believe you, and then verse 9, if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice. See, God is giving an acknowledgement to, to Moses that his questions are valid. That Moses understands something about the, the human nature that we all need to understand, and that is even when God gives us his promise, we still struggle to believe. We've said as we go through the, the book of Exodus, we need to be careful to identify not just with Moses and his unbelief, because that's what seems to be on display here in front of everybody. It's Moses' unbelief or his doubts. But Moses is keenly aware that this is characteristic of every one of us, every human being who has ever lived, that we hear the promises of God and then we go away and we forget them because... Because the things of this world close in around us. Jesus tells a parable of four types of soils to describe the, the receptiveness of the human heart to God's word at work in them. He says some, some fall, won't go through all of them, but some fall on rocky ground. There's no chance for it to, to, to have roots. 
You know, that's the people who have all kinds of things distracting them in life. They, 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 they have every need of God, but they aren't aware of it because there's so much going on around them. And the beginning of this story points this out so vividly when Moses is busy tending his sheep. For 40 years, he is now married. He's tending sheep. He's 80 years old. He's quite comfortable in his new role or his 40-year-old role. But he sees a sight, a bush burning but is not consumed. And he seems to have the choice. Will he ignore it? Will he go about his business? Will he think, well, there's some explanation for it? Or will he turn aside? And it says that he turned aside, responding to the call of God. That wasn't even a vocal cry or call yet. It was just something that happened in his life that distracted, that disrupted. Still other seed or other, the word of God fell on other soil that that was was soft but it was weedy and so it grew up fast it was kind of shallow now i'm combining two of these at the same time but but when after growing up it didn't have room to sink its weeds its its roots down into and it springs up but then the sun comes out and it it shrinks away And Jesus concludes his parable of the soils by saying, but some fell on good soil and it took root and it grew up. He's challenging his followers to be that type of person who cultivate in their hearts and in their minds and in all of their lives a willingness to give the word of God what it needs to grow in their lives. Our propensity is to disbelieve. Our propensity is to look at the world around us and say, God, I know you say one thing, but it sure looks like everything else is true and happening around me. Now Moses has some disbelief. Moses has some questions and he has major reservations of accepting this call. But his questions engage a reality about his own heart and the heart of others that we have to be aware of in this world and in this life if we're to understand the promises of God and to create that type of deep soil that the the Word of God can take root root in our lives and transform and equip us for this life. Now, there are three things that I want us to look at in this, uh, in this passage that will guide us through this. The wind is blowing a little bit. Hold on, let me see if I can get this uh, more situated. And here are the three rough things to, to follow along that God gives us. First, he gives us a promise. Second, he shows us his power. And third, he uses signs to represent that power. He gives signs to confirm it. So promise, power, and signs. Now, Look with me at verse 17. He says, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites. God gives to Moses a promise that he is supposed to carry to the other people. The promises of God are the things 
that secure us in this life. And he gives them throughout Scripture. I said earlier a few weeks ago that one of the most transformative things that can happen in our lives is that we that we memorize, that we identify, we can name the promises of God. In your life, if I challenge you right now, can you write down five promises of God that are true uh, for you in this point, that are true for the church as a whole, that are true for God's interaction with promises? What are the first five that would come to mind? If you get distracted during the sermon today, you can even go and jot some of these down. It's a challenge that I think most of us are a little bit anemic with. We don't really know the promises of God and we we have a hard time holding on to those promises. But where we're going with this and what we'll see in Egypt is that God gives the people of Israel a promise through Moses. And then he carries on to fulfill that promise, to satisfy that promise over and over again when Moses and the people and all kinds of leaders, even Aaron, failed to live up to their end of the bargain, their end of the promises, and God continues to be faithful. He says, I promise. And what is that promise? That promise is very particular here, very specific, and it's helpful to understand this. Let's spend a minute to understand this promise that God gives to Moses. I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt and take you to this other land. It's helpful to understand that land is already occupied. And when God brought Abraham to that land and they lived in that land for a time, God had said, it's not time yet for me to give you this land. And he gave a very specific reason for not being ready to do that. And that reason is that the evil in the land that would eventually merit God's judgment had not risen to a sufficient level. It points to the grace of God and the patience of God that also Abraham displays when that whole dialogue happens with the city of uh, cities of Sodom and, Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot, Abraham's uh, nephew, is living in this city with his wife and his family. And Abraham knows God is coming to judge the cities. And Abraham asks him, well, God, what if there are 50 righteous people in the city. Will you still destroy the city? And God says, no, if there are 50 righteous people in the city, I will not destroy this city. And a sign that says, even if the whole population is going bad, there's just 50. But but Abraham presses in, seeming to test God's patience yet again. But God does something else with it and shows that it's a legitimate question. What if there are 40 people? And God says, no, I won't destroy. Abraham says, well, let me press this just a little bit further. What if there are 30 people? And it seems like the whole story is just getting redundant at this point, repetitive and and unnecessarily repetitive, but repetition has meaning in the Bible. And Abraham continues to press on. What if there are 20? What if there are just 10? And each time God doesn't show impatience, he simply says, if there are 10, I will not destroy the city. And it's interesting to see the parallel of the five questions that Moses asks in those five iterations of the question Abraham asked. But what I want, what's even more pertinent to this 
is that Abraham is revealing that God waits to bring his judgment if only a little bit of good is present in the place. If only a little bit of good is present in the place, God sees it as a place of hope. And what what happens now with the the the, the land of the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites is that God waits until there is no good left in that place. And this is hard for us to fathom. As we tend to look around us and we rightly say that humanity has the the, the common grace of God and there are good things that are happening being done in all kinds of places and so the situation that arose in these places is different than what we experience now in life but what is consistent is that God's grace to enter into places that are full of injustice full of oppression full of wrongdoing like Egypt And like these other places, it comes in a just way. And it comes with a patience and a hopefulness that places will be transformed. There's another parallel account of this that's helpful to reference when you see this. And that's the story of Nineveh that's told by the prophet Jonah. And Jonah called to go to this great city where God says this city is destined for destruction because there's no one righteous in it. Jonah doesn't even want to take the task on like maybe a little bit like Moses he says send somebody else by fleeing in the opposite direction and yet God persists in calling Jonah to come to that place and proclaim that God's judgment is coming that it's real and that it will come but the outcome of that story is far different than the outcome of these other stories of Sodom and Gomorrah and even uh, the armies of Egypt and, of course, the, the land of Canaan and the Hittites and the Amorites. Because there we see not just the people or a group of people, but masses of people, including the rulers of the people, turning in repentance to God. People that aren't even descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And it reminds us that God's promise is not only to a certain people identified by their birthright, but God's promise is to the world as a whole. And His promise that we know in the New Testament plays out is to all people of all nations and tribes and languages. The diversity of the kingdom of God will be immeasurable. Nothing else can compare to that. And God is establishing a people to accomplish that purpose even now in rescuing his people out of Israel and then giving them instructions to welcome the sojourner. That's the promise of God that he's going to deliver them out of this, give them this land. This one I want to wait for this one before I go on to the next point here. God extends his promise in verse 18 and he says this people will listen to your voice 
Moses had all kinds of reasons to believe that the people wouldn't listen to his voice. He was known from 40 years ago to have struck down this Egyptian who was abusing a Hebrew and trying to rescue them, and yet the Hebrews reject his leadership, at least one of them, and it seems like many more. But God says, I will be the one who uses, they will listen to your voice. Go to the elders first. With the elders, they will listen to you and then go to the people. And we see that this plays out in a couple of chapters where, where the, Moses does go to the people and they, they do believe his voice. But he's the one. But now look at, look at verse 19. But I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. God is saying, I know the people will listen to you, but I also know... I also know that the king of Egypt will not do these things. Now, we've said that one of the three things, the overarching themes of the book of Exodus that we want to look at is the question of the affection of the heart and how it plays in to the responsiveness of the people of God, the Israelites, but also the responsiveness of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's characterized, of course, everybody knows this, by his hardness of heart. And sometimes that hardness, it says in Scripture, was his own doing. He hardened his own heart. And sometimes it says that God hardened his heart. And the answer of who hardened Pharaoh's heart is yes, both and. But God is saying right now, I'm promising you, I am telling you that, Mo, that Pharaoh is going to harden his heart. That Pharaoh is going to harden his heart, so don't be surprised when it happens. But I am going to use this to stretch out my hand. To stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. There's an interesting play on words in that verse. That's the same phrase that God is, is letting his hand go into the, to show his power. And then Pharaoh is letting the people go. That doesn't quite capture, the, it's not quite captured in the English translation. But, but God is telling Moses that it's his hand that will deliver the people out. And it's his power at work. That's a good point, place to transition into the second point, and that is that God's power is displayed over and over again throughout this whole passage, particularly when he speaks of his hand. Now just follow this with me. If you're looking at the text, look at 320. I will stretch out my hand. 322. Um, By his hand, sorry, 320. Planes are busy today, aren't they? Sorry, not, not 322, but 4-2. He says to Moses, what's in your hand? And then in 4-4, pick it up with your hand. In 4-6, put your hand in your cloak. And all of these things are pointing to the role of the hand, and God's hand is a symbol of his power. 
But throughout this whole dialogue of Exodus, there's something else going on that Moses is aware of and that the people of Israel would have been aware of, but that most of us are not aware of. And that is the, the, the rep repetition, the use of symbols that were powerful in Egypt to represent something of the gods or a Pharaoh or some truth in Egypt. And Pharaoh was known, his power was described as the power of his hand or his arm extended to accomplish some purpose. And so when God identifies his own hand in 320, I will stretch out my hand, he's contrasting his power with Pharaoh's power so that the people, Moses and all of the people, understand that God is putting himself over and above the mighty power of Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh has had immense power over the people of God up to this point. When he speaks, people do it, and it's been oppressive power. But God says, by the power of my hand, and by the power that I'm giving into your hand, that's holding that staff, the hand that's going in the cloak, I will deliver my people. The power of God is then described. Moses says, they aren't going to believe me. You can tell me you have power, but they aren't going to believe me in 4.1. And so God says to Moses, I will show you. I will show you my power and I will do it through these signs. Three signs in particular he gives to Moses. They, by the way, represent the different signs that God is going to use to show the Egyptians his power. Either power over, um, power over animals, to use animals, turning the this, this staff into a snake. He, turns, he brings animal plagues and flies and locusts and frogs into the place. He says there's, there's power over the physical human body and its well-being. The pestilence or the, the sickness that comes from death is one of those in the ten, ten, uh, ten plagues that is, is displayed. It's also the power over life itself. And the, the river is the, the lifeblood of the place. And, and like the, the veins and vessels in the body... The river was the providing the life of the people. So when he turns the river into blood, it's both killing all the fish and all the life, but in the place, and, and, and there's no more drinking water, but it's also saying that, that I control the lifeblood of, of the people themselves. It's interesting kind of parallels that you can see comparing that river lifeblood, the, the, the vessel system, and the, uh, and, and the human body. And he gives these signs to Moses so that he would believe and then to Moses to show others so that they would believe. And it's worth just looking at what these signs represent and then, and then considering how these signs point us to the even greater accomplishment. So these signs are to the Exodus what the Exodus as a sign is to the redemption and the salvation that Jesus ultimately brings. So these signs are to the Exodus what the Exodus is as a sign to the redemption that Jesus ultimately brings. God says, take the staff in your hand. Take the staff in your hand, throw it on the ground, it'll become, and it becomes a serpent. Now, 
first off, think about where Moses spent the first 40 years of his life. It was in the palace among Pharaoh, among Pharaoh's magicians. Almost everybody here, probably everybody, is familiar that when Moses ends up doing this, what do Pharaoh's magicians do? They throw their staffs down and they become serpents as well. And so it begs the question, is this something new to Moses? Doesn't he know this party trick? But the text tells us, the end of verse 3, what does Moses do when he sees the snake? He runs from it. So even if he had seen this trick done before, this was something significantly different. Maybe some have suggested that they had figured out how to stiffen a live snake using drugs and medicine, and when the, the magicians would throw it down, somehow they would release that from it. The snake would still be drugged up. It wasn't very dangerous. Maybe that's why Moses had known a difference between that party trick and uh, the magician's trick and now this real thing. It's tough to know exactly what was going on, but the, what we do know is that Moses knew that this was a dangerous situation. You don't get a picture of Moses running from things often, do you? At 80 years old, he's still strong, presumably, but he's not running here and there, and yet he jumps. He jumps from the presence of this snake. He sees that it's powerful, and of course what happens later, we'll find out, is that the snake of Moses is an Aaron's staff, eats the snakes of the magicians. There's a power in this sign. And again, the symbolism of the ancient world and the world of Egypt, again, the rod, the staff itself was a symbol of Pharaoh's power. So even that was God challenging the all-powerful Pharaoh by his signs. But he takes it a step further. He says, Put the, your hand inside your coat and pull it out. And it comes out and it's, it's covered with something white. And leprosy, you know, uh, if you're reading a footnote in your Bible, leprosy uh, refers to a number of skin diseases, not just what we know as leprosy today. So we don't really know what the disease was, but we do know that skin diseases were infamously incurable at the time. We think that we're living in a time of pandemic and dangerous times, and we're very careful not to uh, communicate the disease to other people and wearing our masks. But if you knew somebody with leprosy at the time or some other skin disease, you would have treated it with 10 or even 100 times more caution than almost all of us are treating COVID-19. Because once it entered into a place or into a community, it spread quickly and there was no solving. And so they would send people off to live by themselves in a community with other people with skin diseases as a death sentence. Part of Jesus' power over the world and, and the compassion that he saw was that he was willing to go and touch people with skin diseases that were contagious, highly contagious. And in doing so, he was communicating to other people that he had power to heal that. That's what God communicates to Moses and to others around him, is that he has power over things that no one else has power over. Pharaoh's magicians can make staffs into snakes, but they can't heal leprosy. Puts it in, he pulls it out, it's fine, it's healed. 
the last of the miracles, verse 9, he says, if, even if they won't believe these other two signs, listen to your voice. Let me show you a sign that is Im unmistakable that will transform all these people. And it's the sign that God uses first in his plagues, and that is to turn the Nile into blood, the river. And he does it in just a small scale right now to give Moses a sign that he can turn a little bit of water into actual blood. This isn't just a, a reddening of the water like some have suggested. This is the water turning into blood and killing everything in it. Water is a symbol of cleanness and of life, and the people depended on the Nile. It's why cities rose up where they did for all of history until only recently. You couldn't build a city where there wasn't drinkable water or some way to get drinkable water into the city. And God says, I can take this resource away from the city just as easily as I can provide it. They say, I see God's power in all this. But how is this helping us to understand who Jesus is? And the first thing that we have to understand is that we have to understand God's power, Jesus' power, before we can fully grasp his grace. In the New Testament, we read about the difference between Jews and Greeks. The Greeks, they loved wisdom, understanding. They were the people of the philosophers, Plato and Aristotle and many others. They could solve life's problems by understanding, whereas the Jews, Paul says, the Jews seek after signs. It's how... You see, in the book of Acts, the people respond to the gospel oftentimes. Paul will argue with the, uh, or, or dialogue with the Greeks in a way that, that really goes after their mind, whereas Peter and the other disciples are doing what for the Jews? They're showing them, that's page one, I don't need it right now. The Jews want to see the signs. The tongues of flame, fire come and rest on top of them. They want to see God do miracles. Jesus sends out his disciples with power to do the miracles, and that's what compels them. Most of us can identify more with the Greeks today. We want to hear the wisdom. We want to have a compelling argument. Give me a reason to believe. But God knows that the, that the Jews need the signs. They want, to see, they want to see God's power displayed. And this is largely for a particular reason. It's because for the Jews, their position in relation to most of the other countries around them through most of their existence has been one of being a minority, or at least even if they have numerous people they're under the control of other people. And so the signs that they are looking for is a sign that God, their God, the God who had called them, was a God who was powerful over the people who were powerful over them. And I think it's worth slowing down just for a second to identify and recognize 
that many of us feel like we're in those types of positions in various parts of life, even though as a whole we experience immense freedoms to practice and worship like we would like to, immense freedoms in the ability to pursue other jobs if we don't like this job, immense freedoms in our relationships with other people and and the places that we live. But still many of us feel caught and captured and, and, and trapped in those same places, in many of those similar places, in our relationships, in our, in our marriages, in our, our, our jobs, our professions, even in our educational uh, progression or, or, or other things. And if that's a place where you find yourself in, and most of us won't admit this publicly, but if that's a place where you find yourself in, don't be afraid like the Jews to look to the signs that God gives to be reminded of God's power over your life circumstances even now. And be drawn back to the promises that God gives us that he is faithful to deliver and it may not be today or tomorrow. And that's our propensity in this fast food culture that we live in. We're starting to merge out of that and know that that what comes fast usually isn't what's good for us. But we want answers and solutions now when God tends to work over decades and even centuries to deliver his people out of certain places. But the signs of God to those who find themselves in positions of oppression are important. And it's one of the other key themes in Exodus that we're looking at is to try to be able to identify with the the Jewish people in slavery in Egypt as, say, the African-American slaves identified with that culture, that, that community of slaves when they were still enslaved. And as so many throughout history have identified with these people, so that we're not caught up and unintentionally be part of the problem in in oppressing other people. The signs that God gives to Moses that he then takes to the people that convince the people that then lead to the exodus itself are signs that are ultimately pointing still further to, to the redemption that Jesus Christ works on our behalf and that is to rescue us from the power of slavery that is sin and death that the Apostle Paul references and that so many other places in Scripture describe that that in our sin we are slaves to our sin and we need to be freed from that slavery and that is exactly what Jesus Christ does is he frees he he breaks the shackles he releases the chains he breaks us out of prison he removes us from slavery he delivers us through the river into freedom all of these images of the old testament are signs that are helping us to understand not just the exodus but the the greater exodus and that is the release that Jesus brings to people that we need that many of us don't even know that we are slaves in, but until we have the eyes to see it, until the pressure is even more on us, when do the cries of the Israelites raise up to God? It's when the, the, the slave masters keep oppressing them further and further and further. There's an increase of the pressure and they realize, no, I am truly in bondage. And when we come to that realization that we are truly in bondage, then we have a realization that we need to be delivered from it. And the power that God has 
to deliver us from that. It's tough to understand when we just read the New Testament and they say Jesus died to forgive us of our sins. Unless we go back to the signs of the Old Testament and realize how, how massive of a work it is to deliver the people out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt. But God does it. But God does it. And when we understand Jesus more, we can appreciate what he's done for us. Now, I need to close with this last third main theme that we've been looking at through the book of Exodus, and that is that God delivers them physically, and, and our deliverance is not just spiritual, but it's, it's also a physical deliverance out of some difficulties, and, and our call as Christians to pursue that. It's also the affection that God calls us to in our hearts, but it's also this realization that when we are set free, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free, Paul says in Galatians. When we are set free, every one of us will go and serve something else. And worship something else. You see, we are made in the image of God with a, a propensity to worship something and that that should be God when we were made in Adam and Eve before they sinned the only thing that they would be they would worship was God but all of us when we're freed are going to go and find something else to serve to worship and the book of Exodus is a clear indicator that when we are freed, our temptation is to go build a golden calf and bow down and worship that, or to go and find something else to worship, or even desire to go back into the slavery because at least there were some comforts there. But what we need to be directed to is to worship God, the God who is the great I am, in the way that he's told us that he should be worshipped. We can't just make up our worship practices. Many people have done that throughout the ages. Why? I'm going to worship God in the ancient world. One of the classic examples was I'm going to create a temple of prostitution because I know people will be attracted to that a temple. We can't just make up ways to worship God. God gives us his laws that help us to understand what is good and right. And his laws also help us to understand what worship is when it's good and right. The things we do on Sunday morning are because God has set those things out to confess our sins, to hear his call, to come worship him, to be reminded of his assurance, to come and bring offerings on Sunday morning, to, to pray to him, to have his word read and to have it, it taught and to sing his praises as David did and so many other musicians have throughout history. All of these things are in scripture. We don't just make them up. But it's not just on Sunday morning that we worship God, it's all of life. All of life is worship. And the human heart, the human heart is an idol factory. We are constantly creating new things to worship. We're going to look at this as we go into more of the plagues because they represent uh, God or God-like figures uh, in Egypt, God-like figures in Egypt that are idols. 
We think we're past that. We don't deal with idols, but, but we are constantly creating idols. And the simple way you can know that you've got an idol is the question, what happens if this thing is taken away from me? Will my life fall apart? Will it be in shambles? Worship. The worship of God is the thing we have been freed to if we are in Christ Jesus. And it's the thing that we need to live into more and more all the time. It's a good place to stop. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have called us to be your children and called us to this great work act of worship. As we look at the people of Israel being freed from the bondage of slavery, will you remind us and lead us into places of freedom where we can worship you and experience your gospel over and over again. Father, we thank you that you have established your word and given us your truth. We continue to teach us from it that we would understand the depths of the gospel all the more. And Lord, we thank you for this time and these, your words. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.